This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. You're listening to Today with Jeff Vines. My name's Aaron. And today, Pastor Jeff Vines is finishing his message from Isaiah 53 and 54. If you've been around the program for the past few weeks, you know that we're in a massive series titled The Story, where we're journeying through the major narratives of the Bible, starting in the book of Genesis and ending in the book of Revelation. We're looking today at the upper or broader story of God's plan for the world, plus the lower story, which specifically looks at the journey of the Hebrews found in Isaiah. Let's rejoin Pastor Jeff Fines as he's reading from Isaiah 53, verse 10. In Isaiah, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Now, right there, they would say, whoa, whoa, guilt offering. Remember what a guilt offering was? You had sin. You took the unblemished lamb, spotless lamb. You took it and you made an offering. And your guilt was transferred on to the lamb. And the lamb was slaughtered because the wages of sin is death. So your guilt was transferred onto the lamb. But here, the anointed one is going to be a guilt offering. How does that happen? Because everywhere in the Old Testament, it says animal sacrifice is okay, but human sacrifice is never acceptable before God. But wait a minute. This is a human. This is the anointed one being offered as a guilt offering. It makes no sense. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So our sins and our iniquities were placed on him and he died. But human sacrifice is not acceptable. So how can that be the anointed one? The violence, the vicariousness, and finally the voluntariness of his death. In Isaiah 53, 4, surely he took up our pain and carried our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. How can, here's what the original language says. It says that the suffering servant picked up death, put it on his shoulders, and experienced it. The problem is, that's suicide. And suicide is wrong all through the Bible. Now, it's not the unforgivable sin, but it is wrong to take your own life because your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Only the giver of life can take life. But here we have the suffering servant taken upon himself. So in the Hebrew mind... This passage contradicts what they know about the power of the Messiah, the forbiddenness of sacrifice, and of course, the sinfulness of suicide. How can they resolve it? Now, this is my third snapshot, but the real third one is on the back, and I'll reveal it momentarily. 
But to understand who this is and how these are related, you have to go to Acts 8. And in Acts chapter 8, we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch is sitting on the back of a caravan reading a scroll. And guess what the scroll is? This passage I just read to you. Now, the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch is trying to get all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem says a lot about him. Because that trip is long, it's risky, it's dangerous, and the only way in the ancient world that you're going to be willing to go all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem is if, one, you're spiritually deep, or two, you're in great desperation to find the answers to life's questions. The Bible tells us that he was a eunuch and he served in the office of the palace. In those days in the ancient world, if you served the royal family, you agreed to be castrated. You could live the palace life and eat the palace food, but to protect the royal bloodline, you agreed to be castrated. Imagine you're castrated in a, in a world where having children is what makes you ultimately significant. I challenge you to think for a moment that he's going all the way to Jerusalem because he's looking for something that he's never found. Unfortunately, when he gets to the temple, chances are high that he was turned away because the Mosaic law was very clear. Nothing deformed and no one castrated can enter into the temple. And so now he's on his way back. And as he's on his way back, he's reading, somebody had given him, I guess, a copy of Isaiah, the scroll. He's reading it on the back of a caravan. And we pick up the story when the spirit tells Philip, to go to that chariot, stay near it. And Philip runs on up the chariot. He hears the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he responds by saying, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? So then he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And he says, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer in silence. So he did not open his mouth in his humiliation. He was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for he was cut off from the land of the living? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now listen, this is where I usually lose you. Because you like the good stories. But when I start trying to really teach you something, sometimes you kind of zone out on me. I'm watching you. Please get this, because then we'll make the final point. And, and you'll get to Applebee's on time, but please, <laughs> please listen. If this suffering Messiah is God incarnate, come down to man, then the mystery and the riddle is over because it's not suicide. Remember we said that God is the only entity who is self-existing. That is, he doesn't depend on anything outside of himself for his own existence. You and I depend on something outside of ourselves, God. He gave us life. Therefore, our lives do not belong to us. But God does not depend on anything outside of himself. He's eternal. He can do with his life whatever he wants, and he chooses to lay it down for you. If the suffering servant is God in the flesh come down to man, that means the vicariousness of it is solved as well. Why? Because when somebody wounds you, what do you have to do? You have to forgive them. Why? Well, the Bible tells me to. Well, okay. But primarily because if you don't, it will cause a cancer to start to grow in you and it will destroy you and everybody around you. And the person who hurt you years ago, you will enable them to hurt you over and over and over and over. You have to forgive for your own sanity. But make no mistake, 
there's always a cost associated with forgiveness. Either you pay it or the other person pays it. Now, let's be honest, we're in church. Tell me that when somebody offends you and you come up and you devise a plan to get them back, at first when you get them back, it feels good. Come on now. It feels sweet at first. The guilt and sorrow comes later, but immediately it feels so... If you're driving down the 210 and somebody cuts you off and you roll your window down and you flip them off, tell me you don't feel good. <laughs> For a while. I can't even do that anymore. I hurt my fingers. That's another story. But <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? There, there's a certain sense of immediate gratification. But the problem is later the guilt comes and you think, man, what ha- who am I? I can't believe I've, I've sunk to this level. See, forgiveness costs somebody something. There is no such thing as forgiveness without cost. Somebody's going to pay. Either you're going to pay, and you're going to pay by resisting the temptation of vengeance, or you're going to make them pay. Somebody's going to pay, but it doesn't just go away without cost. Now, if that's true in the human world, when we don't even suffer that much because of injustice, how much more is it true in the world of God who abhors unrighteousness? What happened to this Ethiopian eunuch as he starts reading the scroll, he realizes suddenly that God underwent a violent, vicarious death in order to forgive him and receive him. And when it dawned on him what had happened, he was transformed from the inside out. And some of you wonder, why don't I feel God? Where's the emotion? Well, when your heart is melted by the truth of what he actually did for you, the emotion will come. The problem is, It hasn't quite dawned on you yet that God is infinitely holy and he's infinitely loving. He's both. In the infinite holiness, he's required to punish your sin. You know that, right? Because he's holy. He's required to punish your sin, to separate himself from everything that is impure. How many in the room are sinners? All of us. So which means we're in trouble. We're the objects of the wrath of God. But he's also infinitely loving, which means he wants to forgive us and show us grace. The problem is, what a dilemma. How can he be true to both sides of his own character? Sin requires him to punish us. His grace wants to love us and forgive us. That's the only way you can understand Isaiah 53 and 54 is that God sent his son and his son took your death and sin and put it on his shoulders. So the requirements of the holiness of God has been met in that your sin was punished and my sin was punished by his death on the cross. And the requirements of God's love has been met in that he sent his only son to do it so you wouldn't have to. And he did for you what you could not do for yourself. Only when you get to the point where you recognize what your life would have been and your existence would have been like without the suffering servant will you be grateful. The problem is most of us think we're good enough to not need a savior. When you realize the eternity that you were headed toward apart from God, that you had no hope, no life, no significance, no meaning from dust to dust until you realize what God did by reaching down. You will never have your heart melted and you'll never experience God the way he seeks to be experienced. And church will still just be a dull thing to you. You come, get it over with. It's like a spiritual appeasement. Let me go and spiritually appease God and then maybe he'll help me during the week. You're still missing the boat. And you'll be transformed. Think about it. Forgiveness will come easier to you, right? Right? That's how you know you've been changed because you realize what God's forgiven you. So you're going to forgive your mother-in-law. You're going to forgive your brother, your sister, your neighbor. And it's going to be easier. I didn't say easy. I just said easier because you realize that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Oh, that's, this is the big part. You're going to live without fear. You're going to take a lot more risk when you understood what God did for you. You know why? Well, remember I tell you the story about when I was a paper boy, there was this one dude named Lynn Kiker, and every time I went to collect on Friday, he would spit at me, strike me, sick his dog on me, and he was just a big bully, three years older and a big guy. And you can't tell your parents when you're being bullied because you're embarrassed. But my older brother was a Tennessee State Championship wrestler, and I finally got the nerve to tell him. And he was livid with me that I hadn't told him earlier, so he went with me on Friday, the day of collection, and he stood behind the light pole. It's amazing the courage I felt that day. I don't know what happened, but I just felt invincible. So when Lynn Kiker came to the door, I didn't even let him get a word out. Boom! In the name of the Lord Jesus. And I ran as fast as I could. And I just felt courageous, man. It felt so good. And then my brother Tim intercepted him as he ran to start to chase me and just open up a can on him, man. Again, in the name of the Lord. <laughs> if, if I felt that courageous with my brother, how much more courageous would I feel with God behind the light pole? Especially knowing he did this so that I would not be separated from him. When you get the suffering servant, you're going to live your life differently. You're going to know life's too short. You're going to forgive. You're going to know life's too short to put your value and worth in stupid things. And you're going to seek God. But the beauty of it is, beauty of it, beauty is the third symbol. And in Isaiah, he shifts his conversation to the new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Hear what he says. I will rebuild. I'm in 5411. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your embattlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stone. Now you look at that passage and you realize, man, a city built like that would be militarily secure. I mean, you would not penetrate those stones. It would be aesthetically beautiful and wonderful, but it would also be economically valuable because those stones are of great worth. And you think, okay, what's, what's Isaiah talking about? Are we still on the lower story? No, 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 no. Because Jerusalem was rebuilt, but it wasn't rebuilt like this. We've moved from the lower story. We're on the upper story now with what happens with people who make God the ultimate and understand the depth of his love for you and the suffering Messiah and the infinite holiness and love of God that one day, God's not going to simply restore Jerusalem. He's going to restore the ultimate Jerusalem. And you and I are going to be citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. And everything that we've ever looked for, hoped for, imagined becomes a reality. And that kingdom is so great. You'll read about it in Revelation 21. But in Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. I love this because here's what he's saying. And I borrowed this from Lee Strobel, uh, stole it, however you want to say. I give him credit for it, but I've rewritten a little bit. And he uses this example where he says, imagine the first day of 2015 of your life. Imagine the first day of 2015. Here's what happens. You have a horrible medical report. The doctor says you need to come in. Your daughter tells you she's pregnant, but she's unmarried. Your son is arrested for drug trafficking. Your house burns down. Your dog dies. Your wife leaves you and the Dodgers are moved to San Francisco. All that happens in one day. One day. Now that's a pretty bad day, right? But imagine January 2nd, what happens? 
January 2nd, you win the lottery. You discover they mixed up the medical report and you're fine. Your daughter was mistaken. She's not pregnant. Your son is exonerated. Insurance buys you a new house bigger and better than the one you had before. Benny Hinn resurrects your dog. (laughs) Your wife returns and the Dodgers remain in Candlestick Park is hit by an earthquake and falls into the sea. Now that's a pretty good day, right? And what the apostle Paul is saying is this. If you take your life compared to what will be in the new city, Jerusalem, yeah, you'll think back and say, yeah, my life on earth was pretty tough, but compared to what I have now in this five billion trillionth year, man, it was worth it all. The point that Isaiah is making all the way, you know, we found a thousand year old copy of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls find. You know that, right? And you know, we were able to contrast and compare it with earlier writings and the book of Isaiah that you read today is 99.9% pure as what it was originally written. And the only variations are in a comma here or a dot there. Primarily, you're reading today what was originally written, what God originally spoke to the prophet Isaiah. That's amazing to me. And this is where he's leading you. The upper story. How do you get here? Why does he keep using people like uh, an Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, barren women, uh, David, instead of all his older brothers. <laughs> Jacob, the younger, rather than Esau, the old. Why does he keep doing that? To show you that God works best with losers. <laughs> and we all are. And that puts us in a position of strength because it's the weak who get into heaven. It's the weak who come into the city, not the strong. It's those who admit my ultimate worth is in God. He did for me what I could not do for myself. And now, for all those who receive him, one day, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more cancer. No more of this tough world. When I was in uh, Adelaide, I'll close with this. When I was in Adelaide, Jonathan Fontana Rosa, my preacher friend, came up to my hotel room. <laughs> now, I don't know if you noticed but I've been wearing some new shirts lately. (laughs) Have you noticed? Yeah. Well, let me tell you how this happened. Jonathan came up and said, look, I want to talk to you before the conference starts. And I said, cool, man, what do you want? He came up and said, Pastor Jeff, I think you and I are good enough friends to now, I just got to say something to you. I said, what is it? He said, you're one of the best communicators I've ever heard, but you're the worst dressed pastor I've ever seen in my life. I thought, wait a minute. I'm serious. And he, he, he had bought me three brand new shirts as a gift. And he said, I want you to wear these. Please wear these. And uh, I wore the first one last week. And this is the second one. And the next week, I'll wear my favorite one out of the three. Price tag on these shirts were like 150 And I'm thinking, man, I would never spend that. I'm a Walmart Target shopper at best. And he said, I want you to have these. Man, the gift he gave me, the generosity. But I want to tell you, I like these shirts. <laughs> Especially when my wife said to me, man, you look fine in that shirt. <laughs> well, that's worth it all, right? That's worth 150 bucks to me. <laughs> now, as happy and, and, and satisfied as I was with that shirt, there was a time when I was in seminary that I realized what Isaiah means. A few chapters later, I think in 64, when he says there's a robe that we've been given, a robe of righteousness. And that when God sees you and me, he doesn't see the person that we are. He sees the person that he made us through the suffering servant. 
He actually sees Pastor Jeff as righteous. Not because he's pragmatically righteous, but because there's two ways to be righteous. One, keep the law perfectly, or two, pay the penalty. And Jesus paid my penalty, therefore God declares me as righteous. And I get to enter into the kingdom, the new city. I'm going to pray. And when I pray, we're going to sing a song together. And Some of my friends are going to come and stand here. I want to challenge you to rejoice in what you have in Christ. All the way back in Isaiah. I pray for you and myself. I pray that one day your eyes will be open to the power of God accessible to every single one of you that you should never live below your circumstances, that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, the power that is in you to live a life of joy. And the power that you have access by his stripes, we have been healed. The emotional healing that can happen in you through Christ, the physical healing that can happen in you because of Christ. As your pastor, I pray that God would open my eyes so I could open yours. And if you will humble yourself just in one moment of time and say, I know I have not made Christ the ultimate, and you would repent. Or some of you have not given your life to Christ the very first time. You don't think you need a Savior. Maybe the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and now you realize that you do. The kingdom of God is filled with losers that God makes winners, not because of their ability to win, but because Jesus won. He defeated sin, death once and for all, all who call on the name of the Lord. And so when I pray, I'm going to take my place on the side. And as we sing and rejoice, if there's anybody in the room that needs to come and be prayed for, that you would begin to make ultimate things ultimate or that you need to receive Christ for the first time. Now is your time. Father, I thank you and I praise you for a powerful narrative. This prophecy in Isaiah that reminds us of who we are in you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would come alive. I pray that dead bones would rise again. Man, their eyes would be open and they'd say, man, this is the problem. This is why I'm so miserable. I know now and I need you, God, but I don't know how to do it. Then give them the courage to walk up that aisle and have somebody pray with them. And Holy Spirit, would you anoint them? Open their eyes to your truth. And where there needs to be repentance, there's repentance. Where there needs to be rejoicing, there's rejoicing. And where there needs to be gratitude for the life that is to come, the new city, Jerusalem, that is an unshakable kingdom that will one day be ours. I pray that there would be enormous gratitude and the realization that we now stand in no condemnation. Right now, we are not condemned. And because of that, Christ can live his life through and in us. And he is able to do immeasurably more that we could ever hope for, ask for, or imagine is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. 
Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.